Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Buckle up, strap yourself in, and get ready. Welcome to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. remember it taking this long for the vocals. Anyway, good day, everybody. The uh, final weekend in January, Roy Green Show, Chorus Radio Network, and the President of the United States has been in office for one week, and substantial changes have taken place, are taking place. When I uh, sent out my program lineup early this morning, I indicated that uh, the President was starting an initiative to uh, largely halt refugee entry into the United States. And now, um, I know it was announced yesterday, but just looking at the actual facts of the executive action, Syrian refugees will not be allowed into the United States until the president has decided whether or not uh, allowing them in will be consistent with the national interest. We'll tomorrow be speaking with uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser, former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Navy, of Syrian descent, and uh, he has family in Syria. And uh, the refugee program for the United States has been suspended for four months, and for at least 90 days, anybody traveling from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Sudan, and Somalia, Muslim-majority countries, uh, they will be barred from entering the United States. And according to the president, this is needed to, quote, keep out radical Islamic terrorists. And this also extends to people who have green cards in the U.S. So if you're a legal permanent U.S. resident and you have a work permit, but you're from those countries, then you're going to be barred from entering the U.S. if you try to get back into the country. So a lot going on. Later on in the program, it's uh, actually be perfect timing. We'll have um, joining us Stephen Legomsky, Professor Stephen Legomsky. He was the chief counsel at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Barack Obama administration. And we'll talk to uh, Professor uh, Legomsky about the legality, at least constitutionally, of what Mr. Trump has done. The understanding is that what he's done is, in fact, constitutional. And who says that? Well, my guest. That was uh, a point he made yesterday, so we'll hear what he says when he's on the show. Um, Mr. Trump has also spoken favorably about torturing prisoners who are suspected of or confirmed of as members of ISIS or al-Qaeda or other terrorist organizations. He says he's been told by military experts that torture is a valuable tool for extracting information. His new Secretary of Defense, General Jim Mattis, has said he will not support torture being used on prisoners, nor does he agree that torture is effective in the extraction of valuable information. The general has said he would defy his commander-in-chief on that issue. 
We have a lot to talk about. And joining us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, bear with me, please. We have a brand new telephone system, which I have to acquaint myself with. But with us is um, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, the National Counterterrorism Force, and now president of Radical, our premium niche security solutions company. Colonel, good to have you with us. Right, pleasure to be back with you, sir. Let's begin uh, by looking at our Canadian reality, and then we can segue into what's going on in the United States. Um, as we also have said, the president has signed an executive action to, in addition to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, to fund a significant increase in spending on troops and equipment for the U.S. military. The president also has repeatedly warned NATO allies that they'd best meet NATO military funding requirements, a percentage of GDP, which I don't believe Canada has done consistently for quite some time. Why, what does Canada's military need most? And, Colonel Day, have our armed forces been forced to make do with less than even the minimum necessary? Because I remember soldiers telling me on air some years ago that during military exercises, they were required to jump up from cover, point an imaginary weapon at an enemy combatant and shout, bang. Yes, well, regardless of political federal government that's been in place since certainly the uh, early 90s, the the Department of National Defense and, quite honestly, the entire national security apparatus has been under-resourced, under-resourced in both money, personnel, um, and just general equipment to get to, to get the job done. So we are we are grossly lacking across the general purpose force and the military in particular to enable us to do all the tasks that the government of Canada asks. So. Just for, for some metrics, if we compare Canada to Australia, because it's a, normally a very good comparison, um, Australia is paying or, or spending almost 2% of their gross domestic product to the tune of about $32 billion this year for defense, whereas Canada is down around 1%, and we're spending in around $18.6 billion. So just another metric that's kind of important on that, Australia has 24 million people, and Canada has 36 million people. So if we just look at Australia as a, as a peer nation, as an ally, as a Commonwealth partner, Canada is arguably under-resourcing the national security apparatus. Are you at all encouraged by what you've heard from the current government about what they're going to do for the military as far as getting equipment uh, is concerned and providing the necessities, or is it just a continuation of what we've already experienced? Well, my, my personal opinion, it is a continuation of a 25-year trend where we are asking the men and women in Canada's Defence Force to do more with less. And it's quite frankly because a lot of the, the political masters don't understand the threats that this country faces on, a, on any given day. And we've been very fortunate today that that under-resourced both bureaucracy and response mechanism has been able to thwart the vast majority of those threats. So I, I'm, I'm not... Um, positive about uh, resourcing our national security apparatus, including national defense. I, I I'm, a, I'm very pessimistic on that. But that being said, I do have an optimistic outlook on where Canada sits in the world and, uh, and how we do deal with some of these threats. How does this affect, for example, Joint Task Force 2 from doing its job? Because your responsibility, as you pointed out to us previously, is domestic counterterrorism, but JTF2 also has an international responsibility or role to play. Absolutely, and so it's a great question, because what often gets missed is people think they can cherry-pick and fund specific elements within the wider general purpose force. So Joint Task Force 2, as that tip of the spear, 
that, that true crown jewel of the Canadian special operations capability must be enabled by a wider general purpose force. So we only need to look at the, the John Rods, Risedale and Robert Hall's uh, the hostage situations in the Philippines last year. Canada, arguably, does not have an effective response to those international ones because we cannot get there without asking somebody else for help. And as a first world nation, as I've said repeatedly, if you want JTF-2 or you want the National Mission Force to be able to respond anywhere on this planet on behalf of Canadians, you actually have to have a wider military apparatus, national security apparatus, funded and functioning to enable that final mile. And that does not exist today. Colonel Day, had it been um, Israeli citizens, had it been American citizens, had it been British citizens, would they have had the capability, the capacity, to take the required military action to free those hostages had their governments decided to move in that direction? Well, the, the, the only power, the only global power today that can do things unilaterally is, is truly the United States. Almost everybody else in varying degrees needs somebody else for global force projection. What I mean, what I mean by that, the ability to go from your home shores out to where you want to prosecute a target and return that, uh, those, those hostages or whatever they may be back to a safe zone. The only people that can truly do that are the U.S. The difference is many other countries, including, like you said, the, the French, the, well, maybe not the French so much, but the, the British um, and the Israelis have the political will to ask the favors where necessary to enable those forces to go out and, and, and try and rescue those folks if they had to. And sometimes we, we don't understand that we don't have the political will or, or knowledge to ask the right questions of our allies. When we ask young men and women to put their lives at risk, put their lives on the line, literally for this country, which they voluntarily do, and swear an oath to do, then the responsibility of the political leaders is to, at the very least, give them the best equipment possible and provide them with the assurance that they will constantly have their backs. That hasn't been the case in this country for too long. Colonel Day, please hold on. I want to talk to you about what's going on in the United States. We'll come back and we'll do that with a former commanding officer of Canada's Joint Task Force 2, the spear of the Canadian military the uh, counterterrorism special unit that has responsibilities domestically and internationally. Stay with us. Don't let his bark fool you. Roy has a softer side, too. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You can follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show. Just want to let you know that there's something wrong with our webpage, RoyGreenShow.com. It works now and then, but it's not entirely predictable or reliable right now. Our IT people are taking a look to make sure that they can get it all fixed up and getting uh, get it working properly. My guest is Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, retired former commander of JTF-2, Joint Task Force 2, the National Counterterrorism Force, and now president of Reticle, a premium niche security solutions company. Colonel Day, you know what uh, President Trump has uh, has done, the executive actions he's taken as far as keeping or closing the door of the United States to refugee claimants and closing the door of the United States to citizens of seven countries, uh, Muslim-majority companies in the middle, uh, countries in the Middle East and uh, in North Africa. As you look at that decision taken by the president and the reason he gives that he wants to assess and make sure that the, his country is safe from terrorist attack, what do you make of that? Well, I don't want to get into the U.S. political uh, machine because we're certainly living in interesting times. But what I what I would suggest strongly is um, it's a bit of dog whistle politics. 
and uh, when you when you look at um, the refugee crisis across the Middle East and and what is happening there, we need to understand that the the situation between the Middle East, Europe, and North America are three fundamentally fundamentally different spheres, and the vast vast majority of those refugees are seeking a better life. So if we put some faith in our our system to screen those folks appropriately, then the chance of something happening on the backside of that when they come to Canada, where for the most part we welcome them, we give them an opportunity, and the bottom line is we give them hope, then we don't have the same situations that those same refugees are finding in Europe or or potentially in the U.S. Let's look at some of the uh, things that uh, the president has said over the last week uh, that he's been in command in the United States, the commander-in-chief. He's talked about um, torture and that he believes that torture is an effective tool to get in, extract information from uh, individuals who are under, uh, have been captured, who are um, suspected to be terrorists or you know, enemies of the United States. How would you, as a former commander of Canada's elite counterterrorism force, JTF2, how, first of all, how do you define torture? Well, torture, the, the legal definition is the kind of wanton um, physical or mental abuse of a person for either a punishment or trying to elicit their, you know, retribution. It is not interrogation. So torture has proven repeatedly to be not effective. Because what is the point of torturing someone to get a false confession or potentially give you intelligence or information that's not accurate? So uh, torture, um, it's illegal. There's a United States Convention or a Convention on Torture from 1994. Um, The International Criminal Court has said torture is illegal. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to step with the definition of torture. Interrogation, though, and tactical questioning are legal methods to extract information from somebody who has potentially information that you're looking for, um, and hopefully if you can get it out in, in enough time, it may be turned into actionable intelligence. And what I mean by that is it's a piece of information that can be validated, confirmed, and you can use it then to base um, decisions on. Carl Day, where's the line then between, let's call it aggressive interrogation and torture? Well, the, the, the line is, again, it's even aggressive interrogation, as long as we're in that in- interrogation space as defined, and I don't want to necessarily tip our hands to our adversaries, but you, you, you blend over that when you get tortured, when it's wanton, purposeful infliction of harm on someone. And that um, not only harms the individual under torture, what we sometimes lose sight of is those people that do that, like our, our law enforcement, our intelligence folks, they suffer post-traumatic stress and a number of other issues, unless they're psychopaths. So the, the torture path hurts not only our own people, but it hurts the person that clearly we're, we're inflicting that upon and may be giving us information that's not accurate. Now, the new U.S. president, Daley, has used terminology his predecessor, Barack Obama, never or hardly ever used, particularly saying Islamic terrorists. Whose approach is better? Well, again, now we're in the political space. I'm, I'm not 100% sure between branding any form of extremist with a certain nomenclature is necessarily helpful. Yes. These are um, Islamist-inspired jihadis in some cases, but they're extremists. And there's no difference between these crazy people, these scourge that must be removed, and someone on the far Christian right or someone that's got either an eco or another political agenda. Anytime extremism comes to play, 
We need to deal with that, and we need to deal with it harshly. With uh, President Trump committed to building a wall between Mexico and the United States, I've heard several interviews during which Canada has been warned to be prepared for an influx of refugee claimants from Mexico, as well as becoming of greater interest for illegal entry by terrorists and narco-criminals whose access to the United States will have become significantly less simple. What do you say about that? Well, I guess what we need to understand from just, from just a defensive system in, in general, the general comment, no defensive system is perfect. It just is not perfect. Because if you want a perfect defensive system, you need to look at it from a cost-benefit relationship. We can have potentially live in a police state. We could potentially take away all our privacy and our freedoms of uh, you know, language and freedoms of religion, etc., to try and get a certain degree of, of security. Well, it's, just, it's not worth that. So the best approach is a layered defense. You start out with your virtual, your cyber um, security rings. You then bring through that information in through various technology to when you get to the last stand, it's like a football analogy on the one-yard line. That last one-yard stand, you can't always prevent in that defense somebody from scoring a touchdown. So you've got to layer out your defense. You've got to get the information into the right people's hands at the right time. We need to break down the silos inside of these different uh, national security architectures so they can share the information and so then try and keep the people out. So going back to your question, I'm actually not convinced that building a wall or whatever the president may wish to do against Mexico is going to solve everything because one thing about humans, we're incredibly innovative, and when we're trying to find a better way for our families, irrespective of, of where we come from, humans will find a way to get around the wall. I have 20 seconds, Colonel Day. Are we capable of properly defending our borders, our population centers, and our infrastructure from determined terror plotters in this country? Well, I, I guess the question back to you is, like, how do we define properly? I would suggest we're doing a, an above-average job. But as we said off the top, I think we need to resource the national security and national defense apparatus better to let those men and women who are doing what we ask them to do sacrificing what we ask them to sacrifice to set conditions for their success. And I don't think we're all the way there yet. Always good talking to you, Colonel Day. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Roy, and all the best to your listeners. Thank you, Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's elite counterterrorism unit. All right, my number is 1-800-263-2428, 1-800-263-2428. You know what President Trump has put in place as far as closing the door to the United States is concerned for refugee claimants and for citizens of seven countries. And our federal immigration minister has said Canada has always been an open, welcoming country, and we must continue in that vein. 1-800-263-2428 is my number. What's your sense of Donald Trump? Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he over the top? Is he on the mark? And should Canada open its doors more widely than we have been in response to the U.S. president, 800-263-2428. Call me now.